This is Chapter 44 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we get an early start to the holiday break with a book that captures the highs and lows of spending all that time with our families. Then we jumpstart our New Year's Eve plans with the folks who compile the Atlas of Beer. In seven days of us, the Birch family is forced to spend a week during the holidays under quarantine after their globe-trotting doctor daughter is exposed to a highly contagious disease. As you can imagine, drama ensues. Author Francesca Hornack spoke to our Marla Diamond about it. It's Christmas, and for the first time in years, a family gets together, drama ensues, and by drama, we mean drama, beginning with one of the two Birch family daughters under mandatory quarantine after treating a highly contagious and deadly disease in West Africa. I'm Marla Diamond. Joining us today for Author Talks is Francesca Hornack, author of Seven Days of Us. Francesca, what was your inspiration for this novel? Yeah, my inspiration was really began with a great friend of mine who's a doctor treating Ebola in um, Sierra Leone a few years back when the epidemic was at its height. And her family, after she came back, had to spend a month in quarantine. Um, and it just kind of occurred to me that that um, setup of a family in the quarantine, sort of under house arrest together, um, would be a nice way to intensify the standard sort of family Christmas that we all know where perhaps you feel a little bit claustrophobic but at least usually you can leave the house but in this situation the quarantine means that they literally can't go anywhere and no one can come in so um, they're stuck together and that's that was where it started. Seven Days of Us and this is your first novel. How long did it take you to write and what were some of the difficulties along the way? Yeah it was the first um, it was my first fiction and it took Overall, the sort of first, second draft was about nine months, and I know that exactly because I was pregnant while I was doing it, um, and that actually was a very good deadline, knowing that the, the baby was coming. So, um, that, so, yeah, some of the difficulties were kind of fitting it around all of that. But um, And I guess having been a journalist, it is um, it's quite a different discipline, that kind of writing, but quite refreshing as well because you can open out a little bit and you're not trying to condense everything the way you are with a article. And obviously you don't have to fact check because you're just making stuff up. So that was nice. <laughs> was it a little daunting um, being your first fiction? Mm, I think it is quite daunting in one sense because you have no idea if anyone will be interested in it. Um, but it's also um, quite liberating your first fiction because you you aren't sort of trying to you aren't um, nobody's really asking you to do it so you could stop at any moment if you wanted um whereas I'm now working on the second book and that's that brings its own kind of challenge because you're you're trying to follow the the first and um maybe do some things differently but keep some things the same and so so I think the first one is I called the draft on my laptop the the first pancake because you're kind of you just think well let's see how this turns out and in some senses, that's quite nice. So you might have burnt the first one a little bit, but then you rewrote it a hundred times, mm. I'm sure. Um, yeah. So you are working on a sequel. Um, it's actually, it's not a sequel. It's just um, a second novel, but it is oh, okay. um, along the same lines in that it's um, from several characters' viewpoints. Um, it, they're not family this time. They're they're part of an, a neighbourhood community. Um, but yeah, it's not a million miles away. It'll be a similar sort of short chapters 
set up. Um, but this one is set in London, whereas the Seven Days of Us is very much out in the countryside because the family are doing their quarantine in the middle of, of nowhere. So, so it's different, but the same. Yeah. Okay, so uh, getting back to Seven Days of Us, mm. we have Emma, the mom, Andrew, the dad, and yeah. then the two sisters, Olivia and Phoebe, who couldn't be yeah. any more different. Um, yeah. And you've developed these characters very, very well. Um, Thank you. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the story um, without giving away. I mean, there are so mm. many twists and turns. I, mean, I was very surprised by some of them. Um, <laughs> and, you know... How how did you develop these characters so well that, you know, we could kind of feel sympathy for them and then we were angry at them uh, at certain decisions that they made or didn't make? Oh, thank you. I think um, to start, my sort of basic premise was that if they were all going to be stuck in the house together, they needed to be a, an initially quite an uncommunicative family and everybody needed to have something that they were hiding because that way you ha you have lots of potential for conflict and drama um so the the big sort of the two big secrets or the, well there's three really but the the two biggest ones are that Olivia the doctor sister who's been treating the epidemic abroad has actually broken the rule among the medics there by having an affair with another doctor while she's out there so she's put herself at risk and he then once the quarantine begins they hear on the news that he has um caught the virus um Though she's the only one who she hasn't told her family that she had a relationship with him so she's then very paranoid about any time she feels at all unwell which it turns out is often without giving away too much um so she she's shouldering that and then meanwhile the dad andrew has um recently heard from a son he fathered um sort of over 30 years ago and he didn't know that he had this son until recently so he's um he's kind of fielding emails from this man who's who's the fifth character jesse um who eventually comes to the house that's not giving away too much i don't think comes to the house where they're doing the quarantine um so there's those two and also the mother emma has recently had a diagnosis of um serious illness so she's She's worried too, but basically it all seems to centre around kind of hypochondria and health problems, which um, I didn't expect my first novel to be about that. But sometimes you find out what's in your subconscious, I guess. Right. So um, you just so, you put pen yeah. to paper or you start typing and then um, you think, oh, you know, that might be interesting if we <laughs> add this twist, sickness, we I add that say. twist adultery yeah you know? <laughs> i had i did map it out before i started and in retrospect perhaps giving the mother another a, she was also worried about health and illness but that works quite well because she because it's a cancer diagnosis she's actually at risk she's she shouldn't be in the house with her daughter who's because she shouldn't put her immunity at any risk but she decides to sort of chance spending christmas with her daughter because she she doesn't want to, her daughter to have nowhere else to spend the quarantine. So then there's that that tension going on. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that was how I sort of built up the story, the, the different secrets. And um, I structured it over the seven days with everybody giving their view twice in each day, I think. So um, it's quite fast-paced, I hope. I, I think as a journalist, you're 
it's daunting to set off on just writing 90,000 words of sort of without knowing where it's going. So you want to really break it down into the little chunks and that makes it more manageable. Well, I can tell that you're a journalist because I, I read it in maybe the course of over a day. It was a very, oh, very okay. quick read. And it's not a short book, okay. but it's a very quick read. Um, And I'm wondering, um, of all the characters, is there one that most closely resembles you? Um, I I had sort of something in common with all of them. Um, In some senses, on paper, I suppose I'm more like the younger sister because I am... um, I am sort of her generation and I uh, am the youngest in the family. And she's, I I would like to say I was more like the older sister who's a much more admirable character, but I fear I have more in common with the kind of shallow, um, superficial, slightly self, um, well, I hope I'm not as self-absorbed as her, but um, I'm definitely not anything like the doctor sister. So uh, yeah, I guess the younger sister is the one who I resemble in some ways most but then I am a mother and I am a journalist which gave me something to relate to in the parents um uh, so yeah and and it's funny when you're writing it's a bit like acting I guess you kind of slightly enter that character and you find things that you empathize with that you perhaps didn't expect like Jesse the adopted the son who the birth child who comes looking for his father um he's he's from the states and he's gay and he's male and he's adopted and he's vegan and all these things that i'm not but i've i still found i enjoyed writing him and being him when it was his perspective so was that an american stereotype (laughs) well i i fear it it I could have made him a bit more nuanced and he was a bit of a cliche um so i'm sorry about that um but because the 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 British family were already quite, especially the parents, stereotypically kind of reserved and buttoned up and stiff up a lip. It made sense to have a kind of quintessentially communicative, emotionally um, fluent American <laughs> to come and invade them and, and sort of get them all speaking to one another again. Right. So he becomes the most he... he becomes the most endearing character, I think, at the yes, end of the Yes, I think yeah. he was the unexpected hero of it. Um yeah. Yeah. And uh, there there are so many um, unexpected turns in the book right up to the last page, which I have to say, I'm mm. very angry at myself. I somehow opened up to the last page. And, oh, so you knew. Uh, yeah. And I, re- I really ruined it for myself. A, cu- oh, well. a couple of the plot twists, uh, because that last page, don't, if you're listening to this, don't turn to the last page. <laughs> Glue the last two pages together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but there are so many of these unexpected turns. And I'm wondering when you write, do you think of these turns hmm. first and then write backwards? Or does it come to you as you're going along? Um, I did. I matched them out and the, I think all the major ones I I knew in advance, but I did um, the the father um, in my first draft. The father had known about his birth child since the child was born, and had kept that secret from his wife for sort of thirty years. And then I changed it that he so that he only knew had only known about this child for the last year or so. So sometimes I would change something like that because I felt it, it made him too. Um, uh, too unlikable as a character to have kept a secret for 30 years from a wife, whereas keeping it a secret from his wife for a year seemed kind of a bit more forgivable. Um, so things like that I might change, but the the major ones I like to have um, in my head before. But I know some writers prefer to just kind of start and let their characters kind of take over, but 
um, I don't know, that's a bit more left-brained. Or is it right-brained? I'm never sure which which is the, the more logical one. Um, I, I like to sort of know where I'm going. Um, otherwise, it's just like kind of setting off on a journey with no map and wondering where you'll end up. So, so um, this book, is, it's got a lot of drama. We all have this drama when we go home for Thanksgiving or for Christmas or mm. any other holiday where, where we're around the table uh, with each other. But as you said, we can walk out at the end of the night if there's arguments mm. or um, if there's something yeah. that not so... Uh, friendly uh, that goes on, which goes on a lot in a lot of families. Uh, yeah. any, any advice for those of us who will be in these situations over the holidays? Oh. I have to. I don't have a... Um, my family isn't um, dysfunctional and I don't ever want to um, flee when I'm staying at home. But um, but I think we all know that. I think that the tricky thing with family get-togethers is everybody kind of regressing to their, their sort of... Um, expected roles even if they don't even enjoy playing being that that person it's just it's very difficult to surprise one another or something um so i think it it's perhaps if if you do notice that somebody is is perhaps trying to break out of their usual kind of box to to try to help them or let let them rather than kind of forcing them back into their their usual sort of um their usual place if that makes sense I don't know if I've explained that very well but I, th- I think it's it's nice to let one another to let us surprise one another where we can um, particularly if it's in a positive way obviously in fact if it wasn't in a positive way then that wouldn't be good but um, yeah I think and sure you know go off to the loo if all else fails take a few deep breaths <laughs> give yourself a talking to in the mirror right um, yeah and uh, whatever <laughs> whatever you do avoid talking about politics right yes definitely. <laughs> for politics. you it's brexit and for us it's, yep, it's the president yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know there are a lot of uh, little british uh, f- turns of phrase here and some words mm. um which is obvious because you are british um but yeah, uh, yeah I, I didn't have trouble you know understanding um did you worry about um you know this be uh this book being well received in america um i well i i didn't even know when i wrote it that it could, I mean, I suppose it, it's, it's all seemed so far off at that point. So it, it was only when it got bought by America and I did... And actually, the version you read was... It had the, the major Britishisms were sort of edited out by my... Well, my editor and I worked together to find the, the stuff that wasn't going to make any sense. But it, it was really interesting um, realising just how much doesn't translate and, and lots of things that had to be changed. Um, so... I, I hope it was it was comprehensible, um, but if yeah, if you'd read the if you read the original British version, you'd probably find even more that um, made no sense. And that yeah, there are there are all kinds of things that you you even when and I have some American friends, and I realise how much I constantly have to edit the tweak the terms you use. Just all those things like nappy and diaper and sidewalk and pavement and just um, there's more than you you realize, I guess. Well, I found it endearing being an Anglophile okay. myself. And I would <laughs> uh, I would recommend that anybody who is going home for the holidays pick up this book, uh, Seven, oh, Days, Seven Days of Us. Francesca Hornack, it was a pleasure having you on Author Talks. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, for jo- being with you. thank you for joining us from across the pond and enjoy your holidays. Thank you. You too. Happy Christmas. 
Cerveza, pivu, biru, no matter what language you speak, beer is beloved worldwide. And the ultimate guide for beer lovers is the new National Geographic Atlas of Beer. Our newsroom beer aficionado, Jonathan Clark, hopped to it and spoke to authors Nancy Hulse-Poland and Mark Patterson. To think that we've gotten to the point in the beer community, and I say we in the beer community because I am a hophead, I'm a beer lover, that we've gotten to the point where we need an atlas to get us around and to show us and to teach us about beer across the world. Is that where the idea for this came from? In part, as geographers, we spent one day at a San Francisco Irish pub, so if that isn't global enough for you, um, thinking about all the ways that you could look at the geography of beer. And we thought, why can't we actually do this? We actually look into some of these stories and tall tales and misdemeanors and figure out what is what is the story of beer, and, and not just from a historical sense, but actually from an origin sense. So why is it that certain locations have come up with certain styles, and why are certain types of beer, styles of beer, um, become popular the world over? You actually gave a perfect segue, because I was going to mention that's what I found most interesting, the styles that go to the region. Um, I mean, on a, on a smaller level here in the States, everybody says, oh, that's a West Coast IPA or, oh, that's a New England IPA. And what did you discover? How do certain sp- uh, places and spaces on the map get this notoriety for a certain type of beer or what they brew? I think to some degree it has to do with um, what is grown in the area. Uh, and in other cases, it has a lot to do with how the brewers envision their beer. So you, you can tailor beer. You can make you can make an East Coast or a New England IPA on the West Coast, no problem. It probably won't sell as well because the prevailing thought uh, along the West Coast, and I'm going to generalize here, is that we want a West Coast-style IPA. So you get that really hoppy, uh, piney flavor to the beer, which is perhaps not as evident uh, on the East Coast. People really like to have something that they can claim as their own. Whether it be a sports team or a style of beer, people really like to clamor onto something that says, this is the location that this beer style came from. I like it. And then they promote it. Then other people will improve upon that style. And then you get it to advance to a stage where they say, yeah, you know what? This is really great. And then people all over the world will start making it, not just in the given local area. Well, I know from my time following the beer scene and and going back and forth on different beers, I used to trade because, well, I can't get anything like a Treehouse beer or a Trillium beer here in New York, but certainly in Massachusetts they have it aplenty, and I would trade for something like that. But lately I haven't needed to do that because Single Cut, Grimm, there's so many brewers in right here in the, in the five boroughs that are, are matching those styles. And I, I would imagine that you see that in the world over, that if there's a certain sour in Belgium or a certain lager in Germany, that German brewers or Belgian brewers will say, hey, you know what, this is successful for a brewery right here. I'm going to try to match that and improve on it. We see that all over the world. But what we found was a lot of, of brewers outside the U.S. would actually come to the U.S. and basically take a beer vacation travel from brewery to brewery and and learn from those breweries the styles that they're making and then take that information back home and then try and create their own interpretation of the given style. 
And how did you go about in your research? So when you decided this at the San Francisco bar, that this is what you were going to try to do, did you just put out a giant map and say, all right, well, we need to start here. We need to go here. I mean, because you cover everything from festivals to uh, growing scenes. Where did you kind of narrow that down? I would imagine that this is, you know, a huge undertaking when it comes to getting something like this down on paper. We knew which countries we wanted to go to. Where it was in the countries that we wanted to go to really depended on the people that we met. So we would pick a brewery and we would ask them, where should we go to next? So our travels were completely organic. So that way you kind of, because it is a local scene, so I guess you would let the locals kind of dictate where you went from there? Exactly. And all the recommendations we give in the book actually are not our opinions, but those of the people from that given location or locations or regions, countries. So we didn't want to put our opinion on another location. We wanted to ask them where would they recommend people to go to. Where would you say out of the places that you went was the most surprising? I would imagine, you know, we all know that, of course, you want to go to Bavaria, home of Oktoberfest. You want to go to Belgium, uh, Belgium to check out the Belgian style and the Sours and obviously the, the places in the West Coast. But where were you surprised? Like, wow, this is a really great beer scene that I did not suspect to see this kind of activity. Uh, for me, believe it or not, it was Argentina. When you think of Argentina, you probably think of the wine that's produced in that area. But a lot of the brewers down there are taking the uh, used wine barrels and aging their beer in these barrels. And the resulting beer after a year or two of sitting in these barrels is just, it's just phenomenal beer that's coming out of Argentina. And, and very few people know about it. I find what's happening in the Scandinavian countries to be quite interesting. Their use of uh, lacto and some other um, adjuncts that they're adding to beers are making some really unique and forward-thinking IPAs and other styles along those lines that I think people are going to grasp onto in the forthcoming years. How about the United States? What was the area you were most impressed with? I love the United States. <laughs> I, I think you could go on a year-long beer vacation or a beercation. <laughs> you could just travel to all 50 states and find something. So we, we spent four months just in the U.S. traveling... Uh, to various locations, and the U.S., we think, by far, is the world leader in craft beer in terms of its willingness to experiment, the different interpretations of styles. Um, so we're very fortunate that, you know, we don't have to go too far to try some of the best beers in the world. I was really impressed with uh, Michigan and the Midwest area, and it wasn't so much the beers. The beers are outstanding, but it was the people I really found that the people can really sometimes make or break um, your experience with beer, and they they definitely made it, in my opinion. Well, Michigan is a great spot with Founders, Cunahan. I mean, you really have a lot of great stuff. I think Dark Horse is from there as well. Uh, yeah, it really is a, an amazing spot, uh, much like I would imagine Vermont is kind of known as the, the mecca in a lot of places around here in the Northeast. Yeah, we we drove one day, was it nine, ended up being nine hours. So you have that, was it fall peeping? <laughs> Is it fall peeping, they call it? With the, with the, the leaves, leaves leaf peepers, yep, the peepers, yeah. The peepers. So we didn't realize that the peepers would all be out the weekend we were there traveling to Vermont. So the six-hour journey ended up taking nearly 
what, 10? Yeah. By the time it was said and done, I got to see a lot of fall foliage. Um, but we did eventually make it to Vermont, and I can see why people take the day-long trek out to um, try a lot of the beers found in that location. Um, you mentioned some of the festivals, and uh, I, I want to get in a couple of more questions before we wrap up, but everybody knows about Oktoberfest. Um, I know when I went to Oktoberfest, I told people the best way to describe it is picture your the stereotypes to the highest degree, and it probably is about that. W- what would you say, festival-wise, really took the cake? <laughs> well, the best one we went to? Oh, I think that one in Chile. <laughs> we, we went to the... Um... Santiago Beer Festival in Chile. So this is like in the foothills of the Andes Mountains, and the weather was perfect. Um, we tried so many different beers, including beer beer made with uh, marijuana. I don't recommend it. Uh, Honey, we got interviewed while we were there. They had food, they had activities, and it's all set with the Andes in the background. I think that was a pretty remarkable. Uh, and you don't think of Chile as having any sort of beer um, culture, but they've got a big home brewing, nano brewery, microbrewery, um, up and coming swell. And so a lot of these. Um, uh, beer uh, brewers are making beers literally from their homes and bringing them to this um, this beer festival, and you get to try all these home brews, and this is just something that I don't think could ever happen in the U.S. So that was a really unique uh, experience. Well, but if you can't get to Chile... Um, <laughs> we, we always recommend the best beer fest is to go to the local one. Because there, there you get to talk to the brewers, find out you know what's in store, um, and of course the best craft beer is local craft beer. So you're going to find that at the local um, beer fests. Well, I was going to say I'm walking away with this knowing that South America has a, a better and bigger scene than I knew. But real quick, so I have a minute left with you. I, I'm not going to ask what your favorite beer was because that is like asking what your favorite child is. Um, I think that the best way to say it is I'll, I'll ask you each. Uh, what would you say was the best IPA you had, whether it be double or pale ale? Let's put it that way. So what was the best IPA you <laughs> IPA, <had>? oh no. <laughs> uh, mine is from a brewery called Mango Polo, and that's out of Stockholm, Sweden. And it's their um, uh, IPA, uh, mango IPA, sorry, mango milkshake IPA. All right, now, uh, oh, now your turn. I don't have a now good go answer. I don't have a good answer for this. Usually my favorite IPA is the one in front of me. Well, all right, so I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down even more. What was your favorite in America? My favorite IPA in America? Oh, my. Um, oh, no. Don't make me ask Congress you. This should be, yeah, probably Trillium has one. Congress. Congress Street. Yeah, I Con- think I did like that one quite a bit. Oh, and there was a sour IPA made by, uh, by uh, Hill Farms uh, Hill Farmstead that was just uh, uh, quite incredible. Well, now you're. Speaking- so I think those two have probably been my favorite. <laughs> you're, you're speaking my language. I'm a, I'm a huge beer fan. This was when I was asked if I wouldn't mind talking about an atlas of beer. I, I jumped at it because 
I mean, it, it is, uh, it's probably the one thing I know way too much about, and um, my wife wishes our bank account didn't know about. So, uh, <laughs> But I, I appreciate your time today, and um, you know, I, I think anybody who is a fan of beer should check out the book. I mean, I, I was thumbing through it today, and I couldn't, I couldn't put it down because I wanted to keep reading more, and I, uh, I think it's great. So uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. 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 As 2017 winds down, we'd like to thank everyone who made our first year one to remember. The authors and publicists, and of course, our subscribers and all of you who follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. Best wishes for a happy new year, and we'll see you in 2018.